Well, that was a little more dramatic an act of remembrance than we anticipated, but it's great to know that Jackie's all right. And although we say it's just a faint, it's all very alarming for her and for those around her till we know that for sure. But uh, I'm sure she's fine and she was always in good hands with our medical teams around and also the Lord here with her too. Now, you're all a very well-informed congregation, I know. So does any amongst you know what, what First World War event was commemorated on November the 12th just a couple of days ago? Anyone know? Passchendaele, that's right. It was the centenary of the ending of the Battle of Passchendaele. Um, and uh, that's a battle that's actually properly known, did you know, as the Third Battle of Ypres, but we all know it as the Battle of Passchendaele, and it was one of the harshest battles of the First World War. It began, as you can see on the screen there, on July the 31st, and if some of you may remember back in the summer, there was an incredibly moving uh, ceremony at Tynecott Cemetery, um, where the uh, members of all the Allied countries and the German countries came together to remember the beginning of it. So it began in July and it lasted for three and a half months, three and a half months in the most appalling conditions and terrible, terrible slaughter. Passchendaele is a small rural village in Belgium, not too far from Ypres, and it is on the top of a small ridge. And the offensive against the German army was led by British troops along with uh, Belgian and Commonwealth troops alongside. But before the battle had even started, there had been days and days of torrential rain. And that meant that the whole battlefield had turned into a complete quagmire. And it was completely uh, full of mud, which had the consistency, so the historians record, of thick porridge. Mud everywhere. And the shell holes from the artillery fire were filled up with rainwater and debris and rotting bodies. And so a layer of sticky, glutinous slime covered absolutely everything. And to add to the misery, if that was possible, all the supplies of fresh water had been contaminated, and therefore there was sickness rife amongst the troops on both sides. So then, when the offensive started, the big artillery guns simply sank into the soggy ground. And as the troops went over the top into no man's land, many of them drowned in the horrendous, glutinous mud. Added to that, those unbelievable, you can't even imagine what it would be like, add to that, it was the first time when mustard gas had been used uh, in the uh, First World War on the Western Front. So the culmination of all that was that it took three months to gain five miles of ground, and the cost was 270,000 Allied troops and 217,000 German lives in three months. So it's not surprising that the name Passchendaele became associated with military ineptitude and the horrors of war. Field Marshal Haig, who was in command at the time, apparently almost got the sack because of the heavy losses. And indeed, many of his senior staff did get the sack. And the only reason he wasn't given the boot was because they simply couldn't think of anyone better to replace him. So he remained in command. So Passchendaele was a, a, a very resonant 
name to the people of the day as it has been ever since. And the English pronunciation, as I've just said it, Passchendaele, also has had obvious connotations with sacrifice, with the sacrifice of Christ. The passion of Christ is his crucifixion. Now, the Belgian pronunciation, I'm told, is Passchendaele, so it doesn't quite work, but in English... The concept of sacrifice was only too obvious and right at the forefront of people's minds a hundred years ago. So this is the major centenary that we're commemorating in 2017, and rightly so, rightly so. Such sacrifice should never be forgotten. It should be remembered. The lives laid down should be honoured, and along with alongside the lives from lost in Passchendaele, along with all the other lives lost in war and conflict, in service of country, for this country and our allied countries ever since. Now, in a minute, we're going to have our Bible reading, and we're going to hear about God's promises at the time of war. And it's a prophecy by one of the minor prophets, Micah, And he was writing about 700 years before Christ, and he was writing in a little village, in a village in what we now call southern Israel. The northern part of that country had been conquered about 20 to 30 years ago by the Assyrians, and it was a time of constant warfare and military upheaval. Now, there's an awful lot of prophetic doom and gloom in the book of Micah, but the bit we're going to hear just now expresses the future hope for God's people at a time when hope was in really short supply. So let's um, pray and then let's have our reading. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the honour today of remembering lives laid down, uh, lives laid down selflessly for their brothers and sisters in their home countries. Thank you, Lord, for those lives given. Thank you, too, for your word in the scripture. And as we listen to it now, may the words of hope that are expressed in the passage we'll hear resonate in our hearts and stay with us long after this service is over. Amen. So let's have our reading. The reading comes from the book of Micah, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples, and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. 
Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thanks, Rosemary, too. Now, when I read that passage from Micah, these are the questions that I found myself asking. What does living in the now look like in the light of future promises? Promises expressed by Micah and many others in the Bible. Promises that we're, by the way, waiting to see fully honoured. And given that these promises are not yet fulfilled, should they make any difference to the now, to my now, to your now? And then there was a third question, which was an idle wandering on my behalf, uh, which was from verse 1, was wondering, how on earth can a mountain grow higher than it is already? And if you know a reason for that, any geologists, please come and let me know after the service is over. But the first two mainly were the ones that I'm going to look at now. Uh, Before we do, let's just go back to Remembrance Sunday for a minute. Um, And I wonder if it's ever struck you that on Remembrance Sunday, it could be seen as being a little bit like a funeral service in some ways, because in each of them, the Remembrance Sunday commemorations and the funeral, there are three elements. Uh, Firstly, we look back at the life or lives that have ended with thankfulness for those that we have known. Then we acknowledge the present, the now. We acknowledge the grief of the mourners at a funeral. And obviously today we're marking an event like Passchendaele and we acknowledge um, that there are those whose lives were always forever changed by events like that. And the third element is that we're going to be looking into the future. A funeral service should offer hope, the Christian hope. And likewise today, we're going to look forward with hope to the day where God will restore society and bring true peace. Now, I went to the best funeral I ever attended last year. I I know that's a funny thing to say, but it's true. It was at St. Albans Cathedral, and it was the funeral of a second cousin of Steve's who was a retired bishop of St. Albans, John Taylor. Lovely chap. And the funeral service that that, uh, was put together to say goodbye to him vividly um, illustrates what I've just been talking about. To start it, the coffin came in through the rear door of the cathedral past the font, and uh, water was sprinkled from the font on the coffin to symbolise his baptism and the promises that, he'd, that were made at it and his lifelong commitment to Christ through, uh, through his ministry uh, right through to um, a very good old age. Now, on the coffin were laid his bishop robes and his mitre, his bishop's shepherd's crook and his big bishop's pectoral cross, but also his battered falling apart old Bible, because John Taylor was a a wonderful man, rooted in the scriptures, a very humble man, and he was someone who uh, continued to base his life on the Bible right through to its end. 
Then we had an uplifting service where the gospel was preached, where, and at the end, his now unadorned coffin, having removed all the robes and the pomp and everything, the plain coffin was taken out of the side door straight into the graveyard where he was buried immediately next to a previous Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Robert Runcie. It was a whole thing, was a vivid image of death, the reality of it, but the resurrection hope of a believing Christian. His past was celebrated, the present reality acknowledged, and the future hope expressed. It was wonderful. And Micah expresses that threefold hope as well, threefold theme as well. He speaks into the situation of recent wars and conflict, and he most certainly witnessed that at first hand. He denounces the things that have happened in the past, things like the injustice caused by the sinfulness and wrongdoing of the leaders and the people, the existing culture of idolatry that was going on, the rebelliousness against God there was, um, and also empty ritualism, empty following worship rituals. All things which had caused God to bring down his judgment and punishment on the people of Israel and Judah, which he brought about by bringing in the Assyrians and uh, the occupying powers. But the passage we heard speaks of hope. Hope that will come when God restores his kingdom on earth. And Micah said, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Now, the last days, they were generally held to being inaugurated when Christ came first of all, when he came as a baby born to Mary, lived on earth, died on the cross and was resurrected. That was the beginning of the last days. And then they're going to be fulfilled, brought to completion, when he comes back again, when he returns. Which means that we are living in the last days right now. Right now. A time when the peace that Micah referred to has already been initiated by the coming of Jesus and preaching the gospel, but we're waiting for it to come to full fruition at the end of time, at the return of Christ. So we're in this time of overlap. Overlap where the kingdom of God, that's his rule and his reign, has already come, but it's not yet fully come. A time where there is quite patently, still war, still conflict, where the peace we seek just doesn't seem to be there at all. We can just look at the news or listen to the news or read it. There's so many signs of warmongering. There's the ramping up of rhetoric in the situation around in North Korea, Iran, other parts of the Middle East, other parts of the world. We've got the posturing of despotic leaders like Kim Jong-un, the ridiculous infantile insult chucking between him and Donald Trump, which you may have read about this morning. We've got people like Robert Mugabe and his ilk. We've got the violent suppression of minorities like the Rohingya Muslim population in Myanmar. We've got the desperate situation in Syria and other areas of the Middle East. We've got terrorist attacks, suicide bombs, car bombs, vehicles randomly mowing down pedestrians and cyclists. We've got mass shootings, daily evidence of anything but peace in our world. And Micah tells us that true peace will come 
when God restores his creation and his rule is complete. When the world, starting with us, starting actually with me, starting with you, turns to God and allows him to teach us his ways and walk in his paths. Then, and only then, will the word of God go out to the nations. Then, and only then, says Micah, will God settle disputes between the peoples. Then, and only then, says Micah, will the weapons of war be turned into instruments of peace swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. And then and only then, people won't need to go to war with one another, but they'll be able to live in a climate of equality, each with his own vine, each with his own fig tree. And he chose those, Micah did, as symbols of a settled agricultural peace. You cannot be growing things like figs and vines if there's war all around you. So symbolic of peace. Micah wants us to work with God. He wants us to use the tools we've got, like diplomacy, peacemaking, political persuasion, even, if necessary, our military power. But we are to use them for peaceful purposes, not as a means of gaining power and control over others by force for its own sake. We've got a choice. The end of Micah's passage that we read makes it really clear. We can choose to walk in the name of God's with a small g. We can choose to do that like other nations do. We can choose to do our own thing. We can choose to please our own selves. We can choose to deny the existence of God who sent his son to die for us. We can choose to do all that. Or we can choose to walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And that's God with a big capital G. We can choose to walk the way of sacrifice, the walk the way of peace, the walk the way of reconciliation, the walk the way of forgiveness. We can choose to acknowledge the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross who paid the penalty for our wrongdoing just the once for all time. Oh, do you know, brothers and sisters, let's not make Remembrance Sunday something that it's not. Let's not make it a mawkish remembering of the sacrifices of the past, terrible though they were. Let's not make it this time of grief with no hope for the future. Do you know the biblical concept of remembrance? It's not a simple one of nostalgia or maudlin recall. Biblical remembrance embraces the whole compass of human experience so that we can integrate our faith and our daily life in the light of what's happened in the past. That's what walking in the name of our God really means, you know. We acknowledge the Lord. We love him. We obey him. We rely on him. We're called through the Bible to interpret our present circumstances, whatever they're like, our now, our reality, in the light of God's faithfulness in the past. Just a wee while ago, we were watching the uh, ceremony at the Cenotaph. It's the centre of the country's commemorations today, and it's a visible reminder of this principle of God's love and Jesus' sacrifice for us. Because probably you know, um, but the Greek word cenotaph means empty tomb. But unlike the soldiers that the cenotaph commemorates who are buried elsewhere, 
Jesus is not held in a tomb. His tomb's empty because he rose from the dead. He brought about the establishment of God's kingdom of abundant life, of freedom from the tyranny of the powers of evil and sin and death. He's alive and his kingdom has come and it will come. If we make the choice to walk in the name of the Lord our God, then we can join in with God's work to make his peace and his hope known on earth. Dear friends, we can choose to live in the present. As I've said, whatever it's like for now, whether it's awful or whether it's great, we can choose to live in the now with hope for the future that God has in store for each one of us. Even though the world seems to focus more and more on what seems to divide us rather than what brings us together, we can be part of bringing together a community. We can be a part of bringing together a community which isn't just a gathering of individuals, but a a group of individuals with a common purpose and a common aim. Our common aim is God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for it every week. We just did in the Lord's Prayer in churches across the world. God's kingdom come. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So today, yes, we remember the past, giving thanks for the sacrifices of many, including those who gave up their lives in the awful mud uh, of Passchendaele over a hundred years ago in that small village, near that small village. We acknowledge our imperfect present, but we also live with the sure and certain hope that this life is not all there is. It is not. There is a better one to come, a life of peace, a life of equality, a life of justice for all. A life where, as in almost the very last words of the Bible, this is the promise of God for us from the book of Revelation. God's dwelling place is with his people and he will dwell with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the old order of things has passed away. God's kingdom come, God's will be done. Our prayer and the very, very nearly last words of the Bible say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, may that be our prayer today.